Hello. Just a quick update, really. Um, I already mentioned at the beginning of Golden Kraken, which you should have heard by now of the last two weeks. But um, as mentioned, the Dean Day plan that we had, uh, unfortunately, didn't come to fruition due to some technical issues. So what you're about to hear over the next few weeks is a bit of a prologue series, uh, which I've written based on what's been happening in the background of the world for the campaign that we're doing. Um, there is a bit of setup in terms of like what sort of bad guys are coming up. You've already heard of this council of syrinx that have been set up in the Golden Kraken and uh, this next few weeks are going to set up what actually led to the council of syrinx. Um, it's not being shared with the players unless they want to come and listen. So it's not in-world knowledge. This is for you and me, dear listener. Um, and then what should happen is, um, in about three episodes' time, there'll be a quick catch-up of what happened over the last few episodes before we left off on the Christmas break. And finally, we'll then jump back in after that episode with the return to campaign two, because we're starting to record again uh, now that Liam has finally been able to uh, enjoy the full uh, glory of his honeymoon and wedding, etc. Um, so yes, the next, I believe it should be three weeks of episodes. So each Wednesday up to the beginning of March should now be these episodes. They will predominantly be written in a way that it's uh, like we're at the table playing and I'm narrating bits that the characters can see. So it'll be, like I say, it's just for you and me. If the players listen, they're naughty if they use it in-game unless they then learn about this later. But it's just giving a bit of background and world lore to the campaign that you guys are currently listening to. I hope you enjoy and please uh, give us a tweet at 16CandleKeeps. That's 16CandleKeeps on Twitter or find us on Facebook. Let us know what you think of these because this has been a bit of an experiment I've been playing with uh, as a backup for if the, uh, the, the technical issues arose like they did. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. trek their way closer to the spine-chill mountain in the arcane copy of our world, we return our gaze to the tree settlement of Glayfair back on Cordelia. Up in the highest branches of the colossal-sized oak, there is a hollow that houses one of the five dragon gods of Bowerheath. The cosy furnishings filling the space give a homely feel that would seem impossible in the high winds at the top of such a tree. Over in the rightermost side of the room sits a familiar figure at a large loom. She is elven in appearance, with the golden blonde hair braided and entwined with daisies and other little flowers. Her velvet dress is dark green, almost the colour of forest itself. Her gentle bronzed skin glitters under the arcane lights of the loom ahead. 
Checking over the threads of the tapestry working its way through the mechanisms, she glides her fingers over various lines to assure no knots or tangles occur. The most recent addition of the threads has been an interesting hue, three different threads combining at a point at which she had looped in Alaria's own thread into the larger tapestry. A weird grinding noise interrupted the silence. Stepping over to the other side of the machine, Alvarex frowns as she looks down at an errant string that hadn't been there previously. Taking the string between her thumb and finger, she focuses on the story it holds. Deep under the surface of Bowerheath are a maze of caverns and caves, similar to the Underdark of Faerun. It runs from the northern base of the Spinechill Mountain and comes as far south as the Dusk Mines. There could be further caverns and corridors, but these are the known areas thanks to the diligent and intrepid cartographers that risk their lives to map the isle. Each map of what is referred to as the Underdome for the mapping of the caves has always looked like an upside-down snow globe with spidering lines of energy reaching for its edge, come with a warning mostly for specific areas. The most cautious adventurer will steer clear of the areas to avoid inevitable dismemberment or death. There is a cavern system in the lowest part of the Underdome, referred to as the Acid Pits. This area holds the highest grade of warning. The stone walls of the pits are blackened and ominous, lit by the phosphorescent acid pools and fungi that fill dips and troughs in the floors and walls. Creatures that have never seen the light of day called this area home. Specifically, this place is the prison of an almighty beast. Following Alvarex's divination, we come across a human woman sitting on a rocky outcrop in the pits. She is well built, with evidence of a past in manual labour. Her hide armour is made up of multiple creatures that have fallen to her blades. She is ashen-skinned, speckled with soot-like moles and freckles. Her face is a constant sneer not improved by the garish acid scarring around her right eye that leaves the pupil milky. Some physicians who have aided her would suggest the trajectory of the scar would put the attack of such an acid attack from a victim's position, as if the poor arcanist raised their palm in one last-ditch effort to rebuke their assailant. Those that are smart enough not to question would argue that the markings appear to be self-inflicted. Her hair is frizzy and wild, pulled back in an erupting ponytail of blonde, naturally streaked with light browns. In her hand, she holds a spherical crystal of coalescing grey. It's small, about the size of a snooker ball, and gently thrums with her movement. She clears her throat and from the sphere comes a ghostly apparition of a human male dressed in formal servant attire. Black hair, a very prominent widow's peak, 
The man looks aged and stiff. He would not be out of place as a butler for some stately manor. Good evening, madam. How may I be of service to you? Liches. Tell me about them. Again, milady. Tell me about them, Fade. But of course, madam. Uh, liches are uh, commonly accepted as evil entities made of the spellcaster's remains after undergoing a ritual to ascend to lichdom, if you will. Although it must be noted that this alignment uh, is down to the action of the lich after ascension, some are known to use their increased power for good rather than evil. The body can only handle so much of the weave, the arcane energy that people like yourself tap into to create their spells, and as such the caster forgoes their mortal ties to become a living dead. Part of the process is to remove one's soul and place it into an object into which the lich must feed sacrificial souls to power their own soul, as it no longer exists off the mortal energy of its owner. These items, there's some speculation to their name. Uh, archaic scrolls have referred to it as a phylactery, or a soul set, or even a harcrux. It appears that the most politically correct would be the middle, the soul set, according to my knowledge banks at least. <laughs> um, and when you say spellcaster, what type of spellcasters can become a lich? As you may recall from our previous discussions, milady, uh, the, the dominant caster that chooses this path would be that of a wizard. Their hunger and study of magic mean that, although ethically questionable, liches are almost a natural progression for the most adept and powerful. It is detailed that clerics and sorcerers have also become liches, and on the very rare instance there may even be a paladin, Warlocks who break away from their patrons may use their residual connection to the weave to attempt the process, but a knowing patron would never allow such power or a boon to their minion. And what of bards and druids? Pardon my use of such common parlance, milady, but uh, such casters are... They're wise enough to know not to put the tomato in the fruit salad, if you follow me. Please explain. Well, warlocks are restricted. Uh, wizards are power-hungry. Um, clerics and paladins are blinded by their devotion, and sorcerers cannot control their link to the weave. But with druids, they are tied to the living order, so the undead are as unnatural to them as metal armour. And bards, on the other hand, well, they read between the lines where the wizard would only read the fine print for extra spell information. They are the keepers of the law, and as such, no better not to trifle with such affairs, if you follow me. A pause fills the cavern whilst the woman broods on this information once more. Tell me, once more, Lefeid. Who are the most well-known liches of current knowledge? 
records show um, a varied answer to this, my lady. Uh, there is only one known uh, lich on the plain of Cordelia, that being Brendelwick Gall. Um, on the other plains, there are multiple records of infamous casters. Uh, Zaz Tam of Fay, uh, Mork Stormhand of Undermountain, Valindra Shadowmantle of the Host Tower of the Arcane have all come to notoriety in one instance or another. You know who I am asking about fate. Why do you not give me the information that you know I want? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, apologies, madam. Uh, it, uh, it, is, it is widely accepted that if you were to rank all the accomplishments of liches throughout history, that free names ring true as the ultimate form of lichdom. The hardest to divulge would be that of Larlock, the Shadow King. His accolades are only attributed to him due to the devotion of his servitor liches who honour him with their deaths. Of the free, Larlock is the thinker. Never want to get his hands dirty. Uh, Larlock applies his superior followers uh, to make victory against him thyric at best. The second of the free is infamous for his conniving and sadist methods of gaining items and souls of his pleasure. The Eternal One, or Acererak, is a hyper-intelligent being who creates impossible dungeons linked to his soul set. Every death caused by the trials in said tombs feeds into his own power. He has also managed to do two things that the other two may have not yet. Firstly, it is unknown to mortal or deity where Acererak's soul set resides. Secondly, he has managed to bend the weave in such a way that there are now reports of multiple existences of Acererak at one time. It is unknown who is the Alpha and who is the Variant in this, but uh, each, each of them have a personality shift, which allows those brave enough to face one at a time to categorise which Acererak will be their end. Finally, uh, there is Victor Vance, though this name has not been spoken in millennia. Victor now goes by the Whispered One, or more simply put, Vecna. He is the only one of these free to achieve godhood, and uh, so some tomes suggest that he adopted Acererak as a child in one version of the multiverse. It is agreed amongst scholars that the subject that Vecner is arguably most formidable for uh, is, is, is the killing of the Circle of Eight in Greyhawk, uh, the, these being such spellcasters as Mordenkainen or Otteluk, the people who have written the most common magics and most recent magics of date. He is also known as the author of the Book of Vile Evil, where Larlock is manipulative and Acererak is devious, Vecner is known simply as barbaric. He wears his soul set around his neck in an outright defiance to the concept of his demise. However, the Whispered One has become exactly that in current society, as his last conflict many, many hundreds of years ago uh, was where he was slain by his vampire lieutenant Cass. 
he is said to be imprisoned in his fortress on the Plain of Ash until he is released, but no mortal would know of the location or dare even attempt to find the key. Another dark silence falls over the cavern, only interrupted by the gentle bubbling of nearby acid pools. The woman's face shows a mixture of frustration and determination. Mortals may not know, she thinks to herself, but deities on the other hand. That'll be all for now. Thank you, Fade. Fade bows before dispersing into smoke once more and returns to his coalescing home in her hand. As she travels further into the Underdome, her path becomes more disastrous. As the mapmakers could only go so far with the health insurance of their companies, the orientation of the caverns becomes more guesswork than based on solid fact. There are always issues with the natural cave structures, given that there are tremors that cause cave-ins or new corridors where there was simply walling before. But none of this will stop her on her intended goal. She has worked towards this for too long to give up, and if she turns around and tries to flee to the surface now, she knows that this chance may never happen again. To understand why she is attempting to get into such a place, we have skipped forward past the random encounters of stray rust monsters and ropers. Further along the strand of this story, we find the woman entering a gigantic cavern space, which is lit with lava streams and acid pools alike. She stands on a precipice, looking down into the cavern, some 60 to 80 feet down. The dwarves that dug this cavern knew what they were doing, as the sloping ramp down the outer wall is gentle and wide enough to avoid vertigo or other panics. Along the walls are runes carved and gently throbbing with arcane energy. These are the outer shell of the beast's prison. As, she, as her gaze moves further into the room, her eyes become more accustomed to the bursts of light that is given to off the small lake of lava at the bottom. Straggling boulders and stone bridges spider across the surface, leading to the four colossal pillars at the compass points of the room. These four pillars are attached to mithril chains with the thickness of a large oak tree. The chains have similar runes and wards carved into them and run from the north to south and the west to east, holding down the gargantuan frame of the creature itself. Sprawled under these chains is a bulbous ancient red dragon. These creatures normally known for their vanity and physical prowess, the creature looks akin to an athlete who has fallen off the wagon and has never returned. Its wings are pinned down to the stone slab it lies upon by gigantic pitons driven through the flesh and stone alike. This is Brackenwaste. A brief history lesson for those that have not lived on this isle long enough. When the children of Aelstorm and Calvarex came to the isle as dragon gods, one child was not ready for the immense power it would bestow upon him. 
His siblings all took to their ascended forms of dragonborn to dragon god with relative ease. Even Floki, the roguish and mischievous of the five, managed to make good of his ability to whittle out the wily from the weak. But Brackenwaste became hungry for more power. What transpired in the early days of Cordelia, before the more civilised years came, was an all-out war between the dragons. Brackenwaste claimed a cult following, who had helped him absorb the powers of his siblings and created the first known Great Worm. But as always with these cases, heroes of the Free Folk arose to assist their deities and the Great Worm was felled by a group of heroes that banded together from the pioneer cities that had tried to make this land their home before the world splitters had ever arrived. To this day, you will hear mention of some heroes from this party, such as the paladin Azir, whose bones are consecrated in the floating stone settlement of Azir's Drop. Already knowing this history, the woman steps forth and seeks an audience with the fallen god Brackenwaste. My good lord Brackenwaste, chained worm and devourer of siblings, I seek audience and guidance. Brackenwaste's head, previously tucked round and under the shoulder joint of his wing, now lulls round in mild interest. A tooth seemingly the size of the woman's entire torso, his amber eyes take her in and become devilish in the light of the magma surroundings. His scales are flecked with multiple colours of each of his kin. The red undertone overpowers the four of the other colours with ease. Who dares defile the slumber of Brackenwaste? Who assumes to command the Great Worm? Speak, tiny mortal. My lord, I come to you as a humble servant and hopeful ally, nothing more. I require assistance of a powerful deity. And none are more powerful than you. The company alone would have been enough, but the flattery does what she hopes for. The dragon lowers its head onto the stone to gain equal level with the woman. And still you do not answer. Who stumbles so carelessly into my lair? If it please you, my liege, I would prefer to give a moniker. My intentions are not to mislead you, but to gain some distance from myself and the actions that may transpire after our parley. Would you hear my plea? You have my attention, girl. What may I call you, and what do you desire? I would give you my name as Cressful, your lordship. May this be a name you hold dear in the years to come. For I hope that with your assistance I will bring back the dawn of your coming once more. Though my goal is parallel to this, I believe it is a strong bargaining chip in the role you may offer in my own rising. The dragon licks its teeth and a glint of intrigue flickers through its eyes. To continue, Crestfall, what is it 
I must do in payment for your lifting of my chains. This may seem a trivial matter to you, O Grape Worm, but I wish to restore my name in the scrolls of the bards that will come long after I perish. It has for too long been spoken with bile and distaste on the tongue of the free folk, and I wish for them to fear it once more. An admiral goal, my dear Crestfall, but I am yet to see how this has anything to do with my ending incarceration, or how I may assist you further. I know this code name, and that is all. Allow me to lay your battle plan, my most forbiddableness. I have joined a compact with several like-minded individuals. I have a colleague, if you will, who is, as we speak, also seeking audience with his master on Thanatos. The dragon's eyebrow peaks with disbelief. Thanatos! Surely you do not mean... Yes, my lord. My colleague is a champion of the Prince of Undeath himself. Even in this world, the Raven Queen manages to steal the rightful place of the shadow that was. My other like-minded friends have been in search of an artefact I believe could put me in direct contact with another chained god. The Archlich himself, to be precise. The dragon's eyes flit from disbelief to outright excitement. Such powerful company. You appear to be building quite the army of known tyrants. My contemporaries have warned me that Brendelwick Gaul is planning to amass a new hero guild of the land. He is preparing for something, and what better time to strike than when he and his attention is elsewhere. Everything you say is most agreeable, my dear Crestfall. Yet still, your part in this is simply opening the floodgate. I could easily lay waste to the lands as Brendel with cowers in his hall. What do you intend to do in all of this? She pauses and takes a large rucksack off her back. As she opens the drawstring, the bag expands and releases the corpse of a beholder. It is flesh and rotting, its eyeball large and viscous in the centre of the sack of pus, yellowing and dead. She then pulls from a small pocket a small ball of orange that glows its own red light. Brackenwaist cannot tell fully, but it appears to look similar to a large cat's eye. You whose soul is the power of five in one should surely be able to resurrect my poor pet. He was slain trying to help me in collecting this. She holds the eyeball up 
In the dragon's mind there is a flash of a new emotion he has never felt before. Fear. What is this? This, my lord, is the Eye of Vecna. I wish for you to fuse it into my sweet child here and bring him to life once more. Oh, how I have missed him so. The dragon stumbles over his thoughts, panic and fear fighting one another for chief emotion. He then realises his way forward. If what you say is true and you intend to bring a new age to Cordelia, I will join your compact. But I need assurances before I give my power to yours. What do you offer in return? She smiles and falls to one knee as if in subjugation. However, she places her hands on the floor either side of her at shoulder's width and starts to chant. The room starts to shake. Brackenwaist tries his best to look around, but it doesn't take long before the room bends to her will. One by one, the wards on the walls and chains blink out of existence. Then the sound of stone rending pierces the room and two of the pillars snap at the base. Crestfall drops to the floor, momentarily unconscious. When she awakes, Brackenwaist is speechless. He stands for the first time in centuries, his wings pulling through the pittens the chain still holds him low enough that he cannot pull himself out, but he is aware of his increased mobility. He returns to lying, more luxurious than captive this time, and closes his eyes. Placing his lips in almost a whistling fashion, he leans forward towards the beholder's body. As the light and close by magma draws closer into these two items lying side by side, there is a glowing of energy that starts to appear in the centre of the two. The eye slowly rolls from the side of crestfall and joins in the space of the pupil of the beholder's body, which rises up and is surrounded in lava. With an almighty pop of energy and magma, lava is scattered to the far walls. In place of this flaming sphere 
now floats a beholder with a large orange glowing central eye with a slit like a cat's eye. Where normally there would be eight floating eye stalks with immense power, there are now five small rearing dragon heads, each the colour of the chromatic race. In their jaws they hold smaller eyeballs similar to the central eye. Crestfall looks to her pet with complete adoration and tears streaming down her face. One step closer, she tells herself. One step closer. <laughs>